This episode of Earl Grey is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the nonprofit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. Hi, I'm Melinda Snodgrass, the writer of The Measure of a Man for Star Trek Next Generation, and you're listening to Trek FM. Welcome to another episode of Earl Grey, Trek FM's dedicated podcast to the next generation. I'm your host, Justin Ozer, and join with me today are Amy Nelson and Richard Marquez. How are you doing today, Amy? I am doing great. I'm so very excited for your hard work in getting us an interview today. So looking forward to talking with... Oh, thank you. With? I don't know. Do I say it? No, I'll let you say it. (laughs) An interview with Melinda Snodgrass, uh, who's most well known for writing the amazing episode, The Measure of a Man. So we're very excited to interview her here today. Uh, But first, Richard, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. Um... I'm excited to get this started. (laughs) All right, excellent. So with a short introduction, we'll just take you right into the interview. Today on Earl Grey, we have a very special guest, Star Trek The Next Generation writer Melinda Snodgrass, who is probably best known to Star Trek fans as the writer of one of the most acclaimed episodes of the entire Star Trek franchise, The Measure of a Man. Melinda, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for inviting me. I'm really excited to be visiting with you. Oh, it's a pleasure to have you here. So I wanted to start out by asking you, how did your writing career start? Oh, gosh. Um, I have been fortunate in my friends is basically uh, where it started. I was an extremely unhappy attorney. Um, I was a lawyer before I turned to writing. And at the time, I had a very dear friend, Victor Milan, who is one of our wild cards writers, who said to me, you know, I bet you could write if you tried because you're very artistic. Because before I'd gone to law school, I'd studied opera in Vienna. I was going to be a singer, except I'm not exactly built for it. So um, he encouraged me, and I started writing novels sort of in secret to see if I was any good. And uh, I managed to sell a science fiction novel, and then I decided this was what I really wanted to do because writers are the most interesting people in the world. And uh, spending time with them was just so much more attractive than spending time with lawyers who were just talking about their billable hours. So I started writing novels, and I did that for a number of years. And then uh, my best friend, George R.R. Martin, who had moved down to New Mexico, and we'd gotten to know each other, George went off to Hollywood to write first on The New Twilight Zone and then on Beauty and the Beast. And George called me one day, and he said, hey, that's his nickname for me. He said, hey, Snod, I think you'd be pretty good at this screenwriting thing because you have you do very fine, strong dialogue. You have very powerful characters, and you are an architect. You plot everything, and that seems to be, you know, that's the big deal out here in Hollywood. If you write a script, I'll show it to my agent. So, um, like I said, I've been fortunate of my friends. Between Victor getting me into novels and George getting me into Hollywood, um, I'm I'm... I'm very grateful to both of them. Wow. So I'm really curious, like what made you want to write a Star Trek script? Like, did you watch Star Trek? Tell us about that. When I was a kid, um, yeah, when I was a little kid, um, the original Trek came on the air. And I will never forget that first show because I had been reading science fiction since I was seven. First novel I ever read was A Princess of Mars, you know, all by myself without my dad or mom helping me. I adored science fiction. And suddenly 
here was a visual of what I had been dreaming about for my entire, you know, short life at that point. Um, and I loved the original series. You know, I adored Kirk and Spock and McCoy. And um, so when George offered me this opportunity, I had three choices. I thought about doing an L.A. Law spec script, and I can talk more about spec scripts in a minute, because I had been an attorney, but I thought, you know, that show looks like they've plotted way in advance. I think it's going to be very hard to sort of sneak in with an episode. I didn't want to write a Beauty and the Beast script because I thought that was very unfair to my friend. Because if I wrote a really crappy script, then George was going to have to either tell me it was crappy or show it to his bosses and have them say, wow, this is terrible. Why are you bringing this to me? And of course, Next Generation had just come on the air. So I thought, well, you know, I'm I'm an old time Star Trek fan. I love it. I'll I actually hadn't watched the show. I'm embarrassed to say, um, but I sat down and I started watching uh, and recording episodes. And I immediately had an idea for a script uh, because I found Data to be the most interesting character, which, as I've said, is kind of sad considering that he was a robot, you know, um, and he was one of the more in intriguing and interesting characters with more, you know, more possibilities, I guess. Um, and because of my legal training, I had this idea of applying the Dred Scott decision to Data and his relationship with Starfleet Command. And for those of you who don't know, um, the Dred Scott decision was one of the most infamous Supreme Court decisions where the court, I believe it was Chief Justice Taney, ruled that a runaway slave was not a person, he was property and therefore returned him to his owner. Um, and I just thought that would apply very, very well for data. So I, I sat down to write the script. And I think in my heart, in my mind, I pictured it as an original Trek episode, you know, those kind of feelings where, you know, McCoy and Spock and Kirk were had this wonderful tension, you know, between each other with different where they, they favored or believed in different things and they debated these issues. And so that's, um, that's what I did. And I also had a good friend who's a retired Navy officer who gave me the, the, the key that made the script work so well. He said to me, you know, when we're at sea, when we're a ship at sea and we don't have access to a JAG officer, the captain always defends and the first officer always prosecutes. And so I had automatically, I had tension, I had drama between, you know, Picard and, uh, and, and Riker. Yeah. Perfect. Oh my gosh. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So I've, I'm, I'm kind of uh, curious about that because I think before you had written novels and was this the first time you had really written something for TV? Yes. <laughs> yes, it was. Um, I, my first attempt, I didn't get the format right. I was trying, but I didn't do it right. And then I had to redo it quickly because it was way too long so that George could show it to his agent. Um, and, uh, you know, at the time, we didn't have these wonderful screenwriting programs like we have. Now I use Final Draft, which is the industry standard. But at the time, I think we were using this thing called Scripter, and it was not as, as user-friendly. But, you know, I finally got it done. And I gave George the script and he handed it off to his agent, at which point the writer's strike hit and then everything shut down for six months. And I completely forgot about it. Um, you know, I went back to work on my novels and riding my horses and living, you know, being in my role playing group and, you know, with George and Vic and Walter John Williams and people. And, and then out of the blue, I got this call from George's agent after the strike ended saying, Star Trek wants to meet with you. How soon can you get out to L.A.? That was how it started. It, you know, it launched my Hollywood career. Yeah. Now you'd mentioned something about a spec script and, and what is that? Yeah. Well, back in the day, I mean, we still write spec scripts and, and young aspiring writers um, will write a spec script to try to attract an agent or a manager's interest or to show to a producer and But at the time when I broke in, it was recommended that you write a spec script for an existing television show. And George explained to me that this was like your calling card, um, that this would present you and your work and your talent to people. But he said to me, you never, ever sell your spec script. Never, ever, ever. You will not sell it. So... 
And you say, so what you do is you write your spec and then you hope that it's good enough they wanted to meet with you. And then if they do, you come in with three to five other ideas for episodes that you've sort of fleshed out to varying degrees of, of detail and uh, you pitch those because you're never, ever going to sell your spec script. And that's when George gave me the, actually the best piece of, one of the best piece of advice I've ever gotten as a writer. I said to him, George, I have this idea for a script and I think it's pretty terrific and maybe I shouldn't waste it on the spec. Maybe I should save it for the pitch. And he said to me, Melinda, always lead with the very best thing you've got, the thing you are most passionate about. So rather than holding off, I wrote The Measure of a Man as my spec. And then I sold it. <laughs> and then not only did I sell it, after Maury had worked with me for about three hours one day giving me notes and me coming up with solutions to their, their problems with the script, um, he said to me, I'm hiring you. You start on Monday. And that was on Thursday in L.A. So um, I had the one case where lightning, lightning struck. And, um, and I did sell my spec script and it did launch my career. So uh, but at the time, you know, it was a different world. Like I said, today, agents and managers and producers like to see a writer's own vision rather than have you write an episode of, you know, Daredevil or Jessica Jones or The Flash or whatever your interest is. They really want to see a spec TV pilot out of a young writer, a spec feature, something like that. Yeah, so I'm curious about a couple of things about the episode, uh, The Measure of a Man. You know, there are a couple of, of characters uh, in there that that we haven't seen before, uh, Philip Lavoie and uh, and Commander Bruce Maddox, and I wondered, you know, if there was, you know, an inspiration you had for those those particular characters. Um, I, you know, i i wanted a I wanted a scientist who was so lost in the science that he had forgotten his humanity, and that he has an arc too. And I wanted him to have a bit of an arc in the story. That at the end he goes from calling Data it to calling him him. And with Philippa, I just wanted a really smart, powerful woman who was Picard's equal um, and who had the ability to stand toe-to-toe with him. And that was really all that was behind it. And, you know, I allude to this thing that happened in their past that I didn't flesh it out. I didn't go into it because you never, ever play the backstory. But I just wanted that sense of tension that, you know, things had happened between them. Um, that you never really talk about, but it's there. And, you know, I was I was so blessed in my actors. I mean, my God, they were all wonderful. Um, everybody, I thought, turned in just a tremendous performance. And, uh, and I was so grateful that Jonathan got to... I mean, Jonathan's really a very fine actor, and, um, and he certainly is a great director. And, you know, this gave him the chance to actually, you know, show some of his chops, too, you know. So I was, I was very fortunate to have such terrific actors delivering my lines. Yeah, so I'm also curious, like, you know, at, at that time, um, you know, as the writer of, of the episode, um, were you just working with the writers and, and producers or was it the case that you would be, you know, on set at all? Or how did it work at that time? Star Trek was an odd show. Um, we really weren't permitted on the set, which was a very strange thing. Um, I didn't know because this was my first job. Um, I did get on the set once or twice. Maury, my boss, Morris Hurley, took me over. And uh, I've got to tell you, I mean, I had, you know, the, I had a huge high the first time I saw one of my novels on sale in a bookstore, you know, and it was real. But it was nothing compared to sound, standing on a soundstage and hearing actors deliver your dialogue. That is the most amazing high I've ever had in my life. Um, so I was there a little, but I mean, the, the good thing was that because they hired me so quickly, um, I was able to do all of the rewriting all of the notes that were necessary so the script stayed mine. You know, it was not rewritten by the staff because I was suddenly part of the staff. Um, I mean, for example, I had to invent the poker game because the original teaser that I had for the script wouldn't work. Uh, one, they couldn't go off set to find a swimming pool. And two, <laughs> um, Brent's makeup would have come off if oh, they had done right. the thing I had written. <laughs> so I had to come up with, I needed to come up with something where you can study all the theory and still not be able to do it. 
And I was thinking that swimming was a nice, you know, data was like, I've read all the books on swimming. And of course, he gets in the swimming pool, he sinks like a stone because he was supposed to weigh like 400 pounds. Um, and when they couldn't do that, I had to come up with something else. And uh, so, you know, I came up with poker game. Yeah. And, the, and that is the, I think the first time we see a, a poker game on the that next generation, right? That is the first right? time that they, they did the poker game. Yes. And it kept, and you know, they, you kept seeing them in poker games right up until you know the last episode, all good things. So I mean, I think that's one of the things that we think about when we think of the next generation, them playing poker in these different episodes. Yeah, it's sort of ironic that that's the one thing that was out of desperation became this trope, you know, through the through the thing. But but such is television. I mean, I it's it's like doing a high wire act while you're laying track for a train that's 500 feet behind you because especially when you, I mean, now with a new model where you're doing eight or 10 episodes, maybe 12 or 13, it isn't as intense, but boy, when you're doing 22 episodes on the air, um, it's the schedule is crazy. Yeah. So, um, I I mean, I'm also curious. So, you know, you wrote this episode, you're on the staff, you're making the changes to it. It got filmed and, and it was released. So, um, I mean, I think, as I said at the at, at the top of the interview, it's considered to be you know the most acclaimed, one of the best episodes in the whole franchise. Like, how was it received at the time? Um, you know, I I think everybody knew there was something fairly special about it um, because the director deliberately, um, when he created the the his his director's cut. He kept in all the scenes, and the show was 14, 13 minutes too long because they'd never shot anything like that. And he, he, he had made the decision to shoot all the scenes, even though he knew it was running long. So, you know, I don't think I realized it at the time. Um, it wasn't until later when, you know, we started getting, you know, information that had been placed in a museum of AI, you know, in Paris, France, and all these other things that it had become this 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 event um i mean i think that when i look back on it i just tried to write something that shed light on the human condition and that was about the human heart in conflict with itself um because that's the essence of good drama (laughs) um so you know that was and and at the time of course by then i was buried in trying to keep up with the show and learn how to work TV, which was a brand new experience. And and we were working um, 12, 14 hours a day. I mean, I would get out of work at eight at night and go over to where George was. His his office was just down the street from Paramount uh, for Beauty and the Beast. And then we would meet and go to dinner at nine o'clock at night. Um, television is an industry that eats its young, you know, there's no doubt. So um, I, I don't think I realized at the time um, that that this was going to be quite such a a thing. You know. So I one of my other favorite ones of yours is the high ground. Can you tell me a little bit about that? And and I felt I feel like some people say that it's too bonk bonk on the head, but I love the high ground and how you twisted to see this terrorist on the other side from the different perspective? You know, I hate to admit this. I really don't have a strong impression of what exactly I did. Um, I, 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 I feel so embarrassed to admit that, but I really, really don't. I mean, I... I think I got pulled into it. I mean, you know, it's very collaborative. Um, and when you have a good staff, that's wonderful. Um, but I, <laughs> again, I think I always fall back on that, you know, what does this say about the human condition and how do I explicate the human heart and conflict with self? And so um, I, I wish I could be more helpful, but I really can't. I mean, and it has been a long time. Yeah. So um, forgive me, but I, I I truly don't remember. That's all right. Well, maybe maybe I can ask a question this way. So, you know, for the, the different episodes that you worked on on The Next Generation, besides The Measure of a Man, which we've just talked about, do you have, you know, any favorite moments, you know, in that process or the making of those episodes? Um, I, I really enjoyed um, 
working. Uh, there was a story out there that became Pen Pals, um, and the story already existed, and Maury gave it to me to write. Um, uh, you know, I was the only woman on the staff, and I think that, you know, sometimes the, um, oh, let Melinda write the, the touchy-feely stuff. Here we go. Um, and I enjoyed writing Pen Pals. Um, and, you know, I, I sort of have my version of my city on the edge of forever. The one that I really regret was The Instance of Command, which was a script I really liked that I think did not come out at all how I had hoped. And in fact, I, 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 I kind of took a leaf from Harlan and my version of the script is actually up on my website. Um, because I was, <sighs> There was some misunderstandings about, you know, I had been asked, requested by Gene to have data get laid again. Um, and, uh, and, you know, I, I got it. I mean, what I want to do was Shane, you know, I wanted to do the, the, the dark, tall, dark stranger comes to town, you know, and, and is, and a young woman is just uh, amazed by him. And I'd never intended for, you know, data to get laid. <laughs> You know, I just wanted this young woman to have this tremendous crush on somebody who came from the stars, you know, who was literally so exciting. And then I got, Gene said, you know, let them do their thing. <laughs> and so I wandered around. I mean, I literally paced a hole in my office carpet trying to figure out, okay, how do I logically get a robot to take this woman to bed? <laughs> and... um I, and if you look at my version of the script, it is very clear that it is data working through point A leads to point B, which leads to point C. But there was this misunderstanding that I had made data emotional, which I hadn't. Um, and my then boss um, was the forgotten man of Star Trek, um, um, not Michael Piller. He was just before Michael Piller. Um, Anyway, he only lasted okay. six weeks. But, you know, Michael tried to defend my script, and it just turned into a giant hysterical thing. So I feel like that one did not come out as well as I had hoped. Um, I did have fun with the legal stuff with the aliens, you know, with a very legalistic society. Um, but I think I lost the heart of what I wanted to do with data. Interesting. So, you know, that was... Yeah, because actually we were we were talking about the instance of command a little uh, before, you know, we, we started, uh, interviewing you. Um, and, uh, we actually liked that episode quite a bit, but it'd be definitely be interesting to, to read your original <laughs> screenplay and see what it was like. <laughs> Go read yeah. my version. <laughs> yeah. It's up on my website under writing <laughs> along with my mass effect fan story. God help me. Um, I, I love video games too. So, and I became very frustrated with the end of the third Mass Effect game, and so I wrote my own oh, ending. Interesting. Uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, I know. As if I don't have enough to do, I had to write I don't know how many thousands of words of a fan fanfic, you know, for a video game. But sometimes you just have to. <laughs> so, uh, actually, Richard, I want to see if you have a question. Uh, well, I, uh, all of them were actually uh, for the high ground, but <laughs> if she can't remember. <laughs> <laughs> And I can't be helpful. I'm so sorry. You know, maybe I ought to go back and rewatch that episode. I mean, I, I have a terrible confession to make, and I'm sure this comes as no shock to anybody who, you know, knows Star Trek. It was a very difficult show. It was a very difficult experience behind the scene. And, um, I, you know, as a result, I was pretty burned out on Star Trek. I never watched a single episode after I left the show of any of the shows. Um, I, I came back to watch um, the J.J. Abrams movies. Sometimes I was really sorry. <laughs> but um, I, you know, I just, I, I could not, I could not be in that space anymore. Mm. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's, perhaps I will, you know, dial that up on Netflix and try to remember what it was I did. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> and I think one of the things that episode is known for is there's a mention of, uh, an Irish unification in 2024. So it was actually banned in the UK for a number of years because of that reference. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I do remember that. Um, so, uh, you know, you have to look at where the world is going and, and right now, unfortunately it feels like it's spinning apart rather than, you know, Coming unifying. Together. So, yeah. 
Um, sadly, I, I, I want the Federation. I really do. I would like to be able to call myself an Earth woman uh, <laughs> instead of uh, instead of individual countries. But someday, maybe we'll get there. Well, it sounds like that um, Data is, you know, one of your favorite characters. Are there other characters that you enjoyed writing script for? Um, I, you know, Data did hold my heart, definitely. Um, I really enjoyed writing for Worf, and I really enjoyed writing for, for uh, Riker. Hmm. I, I felt like that was an underutilized character, um, and I just wish he could have been given... Um, a little bit more depth and 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 I I mean I know this is unpopular I loved writing for Pulaski uh, because Diana Muldaur is one of the great actresses yes um, she is you know extraordinary talent and and professionalism and I really liked writing for her because she had she had sharp edges you know I mean one of our biggest problems on the show and again I'm not telling tales out of school I've given other interviews is that there was no conflict, um, and the essence of drama is conflict. And, I mean, Jean said to us in one meeting, my people are perfect, they have no flaws. Mm-hmm. And we were like, we don't know how to write stories about people that don't have any flaws. I mean, um, and and I think back on the original show where there were real disagreements. They cared for each other, but, but Kirk and Spock and McCoy – you know, they they had sharp elbows. They threw yeah, they elbows were constantly at each other, at each other every and episode, I wish right? Had... Practically. <laughs> yeah, and and then things, interesting issues were discussed, and when everybody just blandly agrees, there. Um, I mean, truthfully, we we were very lucky that Measure got through the way it did. I mean, Gene um, was unavailable for the six weeks while we were prepping and shooting that show because in Gene's universe, he literally said to me, there are no lawyers in the 24th century. And I said, that's not possible. I mean, mm-hmm. it, you know, the law law under underpins everything. And, and even if you assume that there is no criminals because we've made their minds right or whatever it was, their attitude was that, that Jean had, you still have to negotiate contracts. Right. People, you know, treaties have to be done. I mean, things have to happen that lawyers and the law are the essence of civilization. So that didn't make any sense to me. Um, and a part of the problem, too, is, you know, I, I we got really tired of the magic stuff coming out of the walls. I mean, you know, want anything? There is no want. What, I mean, literally, we were breaking a story one day, and, and our tremendous, terrific boss, Ira Bear, who I love Ira. Ira taught me so much. Um, we were trying to break this story, and Ira said, okay, what? what is it that Troy wants? What does she want? And we all just sat there staring at him. And he said, she wants, oh, hell, she I don't know what that she wants, you know, <laughs> um, because there is no, you know, I, I really wanted to see more of the world that the Harry Muds inherit and uh, inhabit than, than the perfect crew of the Enterprise. Um, I would love to have seen a show that's about the people living in the cracks of the Federation, you know, the rogues and the, and the thieves and the, the con men. Um, I think that could have been a really fun show. Um, that, that way, if somebody had come to me and said, what would you do for the next Star Trek franchise? I would say, let's do the Harry Mudd version of Star Trek where they're always trying to put one over on the Federation or hide from the Federation or, you know, I'm actually curious to go back a little bit to something that you said. So you were saying that for Measure of a Man, it was something that was kind of in production while Gene Roddenberry was unavailable. And he had said that, you know, there wouldn't be lawyers in the 24th century and all of that. So when it actually got made, was there any reaction from him or did he say anything about it? No, at that point, once it was done, and I think, and the feedback started, then he loved it. (laughs) But he also told me in a meeting, he also told me in a meeting after there were no lawyers, he said, and Data would just be charmed. He would love to be disassembled. He would think this was fascinating. And I said to him, well, excuse me, Mr. Roddenberry, but then we don't have a script. (laughs) I mean, um, so, 
you know, and it's funny because David Gerald is a good friend of mine. And the same thing happened on The Trouble with Tribbles. Um, Gene was just burnt out, took a vacation because he didn't like that kind of slapstick funny. And and uh, I was on a panel with, with David. It was David and George Martin and I. And David started telling about how Trouble with Tribbles, they were going to take all the humor out of it. And nobody, you know, Gene didn't like it. And then he went on vacation and they crushed it in and shot it anyway. <laughs> And um, George just started howling with laughter and said, David, let her tell you her story about <laughs> Major of a Man. And we had had exactly the same experience. So, um, you know, it, it's just, it's funny how across decades, some things don't really change, you know. Yeah, that's really something. I mean, Measure of a Man is one of my favorite episodes. Trouble with Tribbles is one of my favorite episodes. And it's possible that neither of those might have gotten made if some things were a little different. No, they probably wouldn't have in a different universe, in, in, our, in a multiverse where, that, where Gene didn't go get sick or go on vacation. Neither of those episodes would have been made. Um, yeah, I love Tribbles. I mean, it will just stop me in my tracks to watch it every time. Um, you know, the, the charm and, and just, you know, you got the feeling these people liked each other. Yeah, and I think that's what I missed on Next Generation. Um, I hated the holodeck. <laughs> I hated it with a passion. Um, I wanted them to decide it caused cancer and get rid of it. Uh, I thought it made for lazy writing and um, lazy storytelling, and and it just I really. I wanted those scenes from original Trek in the rec room where Uhura is singing and Spock is playing the harp. And, you know, there was this sense that these people liked each other and spent time with each other and, and, and shared things. And I never really, I mean, they, they all went down to the holodeck and played with themselves and it made me crazy. Um, and also the first time that thing took over the ship, that would have been it, you know, <laughs> <laughs> like rip those out of every ship in the fleet. Um, well, so you had mentioned that, you know, things were not the best writing. And so like, when did you decide to leave? And then what did you do afterwards? What was your next door of opportunity? Um, my next door of opportunity, um, I left at the end of the third season. Um, I told them that I, you know, was pretty burnt out and I wanted to go back to New Mexico and write books. And, uh, that was my intention was not to come back to Hollywood, but my agent called and said, they'd like to interview you for a show called reasonable doubts and which was a lawyer cop show mm -hmm. and, uh, run by Robert Singer. And it starred Mark Harmon and Marley Maitland. Yes. And, uh, I came back for the interview and they hired me. And uh, I loved it. It was, it was a very different experience from Trek in that I was. We always watched dailies together. We were involved in casting on the episodes we wrote. We could go over to the set anytime we felt like. Um, we were seated for the table readings when a new script would come out. We'd get the actors over during their lunch and bring in lunches and have them read the script so we could say, "Ooh, that line doesn't work. You know, he can't say that line very well. Let's rewrite that." Um, and I loved it. Uh, unfortunately, we got canceled at the end of that second year, um, that one year that I worked with them. Um, but it was, I, I learned a tremendous amount. Um, Bob Singer, like Ira had been my mentor on Star Trek, well, and Ricky and Hans too, to a large degree. I, I learned how to break stories and really plot. I mean, I thought I was good at plotting until I got to Hollywood and I really didn't know anything. And um, I learned that on Trek, and I learned so much from Bob Singer. He was very generous to me. He would, uh, Bob was primarily a director, a writer director, and uh, he would have me come and join him in the editing room and watch while he put together a show while he'd work with the editors. Um, and you can rewrite a show. I mean, you can, it's like rewriting the script in the editing room. If, if there's problems, a good editor can really start cleaning things up. So I learned a tremendous amount from him. And I just, I had a lot of fun. We had a wonderful writing staff um, and obviously very talented actors. Marley was an Academy Award winning actress. Yes. And, um, and, and I, I, I really enjoyed doing that. Uh, so I did, Reasonable Doubts, and then I wrote a bunch of TV pilots <laughs> that uh, didn't get made, but I had fun writing them. Mm -hmm. And I worked on Profiler. I was a co-executive producer on Profiler, which was another cop show. Um, 
and you know in between did a bunch of spec uh, our scripts for tv pilots did some freelance scripts for various shows like Sequest and Outer Limits. And um, actually, I wrote the two-hour opener for the Outer Limits based on a story by George Martin. So, Well, it sounds like you didn't get back to New Mexico. <laughs> as much as I can. I mean, periodically, I still have my house there, and um, I still think of it as, as ultimately home. Um, but I divide my time because right now I'm working – developing a series of books that I co-edit and write for with George Martin called Wild Cards, and I'm developing that for television with Universal Pictures. So um, in the in the throes of that and uh, have another show I want to pitch to Universal based on some books I do about a young woman lawyer in a vampire law firm in Manhattan. Wow. So, <laughs> um, so hopefully, you know, Wild Cards is farther along, obviously, but hopefully we're going to be on the air with Wild Cards um, next fall. That's nice. Our, that's we'll our goal anyway. It. Well, I, I have a, a couple of questions for you about some of the novels that you've written. Um, I, I noticed that one of the novels that you did was actually a Star Trek original series novel. I think it was in 1984, The Tears of the Singers. So can you tell us about that experience? Yeah, um, I... I wanted to get into writing science fiction, and it was hard to break in. And I was at a science fiction convention, the World Fantasy Convention um, in Phoenix, and I was introduced to an editor, David Hartwell, who at the time was the editor of the newly launched Star Trek book series. And we talked and had a drink together, and he said, you know, you need to get, you need to do one science fiction thing, and I like you and I think you're interesting and you clearly love Trek. Send me a proposal for a Star Trek book. And um, it was easy. I picked Ahura because I was a singer and she was a singer. And I just think she's wonderful. Um, and so I, you know, sat around and I analyzed Trek and I, with my friend Victor Milan, and I said, you know, there's like the hard edged balance of terror, you know, those kind of Trek episodes. And then there are the really slapstick fun ones. And then there's the sort of soft and fuzzy ones. And so I decided to write a soft and fuzzy. And I thought, what is more soft and fuzzy than baby seals? So um, I came up with the, the whole plot behind it, and I really enjoyed writing it. But it was interesting. David gave me a piece of advice as he said he was going to buy the book and to, told me to go write it. He said, this is going to be fun, and have fun doing it. Never do another one. He said, if you do, you will become a, a tie-in television or movie tie-in writer, and you'll never have your own career. And so I have faithfully followed that advice, even when I was working on Next Generation, and they called and offered me a, to write a big Star Trek novel and offered me quite a bit of money. But I said, no, David Hartwell told me to never do that. So thank you, but no. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't wow. do it. But, um, but it was, um, I'm really glad. And it did help, you know, get me some notice in the field. And then I was able to go on and sell my own books. And so that was, um, Oh, lots of Star Trek. Star Trek has helped launch a lot of my careers. You know? Yeah, definitely. It definitely sounds like it. So besides writing, what else occupies your time? What else do you like to do? Oh, well, I, I'm a horsewoman. Um, I'm, a, I'm a dressage rider. Um, I'm an upper-level dressage rider. I've been riding, riding since I was three years old. Um, and I have two beautiful Lusitanos. Uh, Lusitano is a Portuguese horse breed. Um, I have a stallion, a white stallion named Vento de Broja, who is doing the Grand Prix now. He's enormously talented. And I have a young buckskin gelding um, named Donador, and he's coming along. Uh, Donnie had a tough start in life, and he had a lot of different owners, and now I've got him, and he's learning to have a work ethic <laughs> and, um, and enjoy his job. Um, he's a good kid, though. He's going to be fun. And he's eight, and Vento is 14. So I wanted something younger coming up behind my older horse, and I didn't want to wait until I was too old to be riding a young horse because, you know, horseback riding can be dangerous <laughs> to your health. Um, but I love it, and I, I'd ride five days a week. Um, and uh, it's good. I think too many riders spend too much time sitting and being sedentary 
And I think that your mind works better when you're physically active. So on the days I don't ride, I go to the gym and I work out there. Um, I love music. I mean, I was a singer. Uh, especially love Broadway. So, you know, every chance I get, I try to go see a Broadway show if I'm in New York or grab a ticket out here in LA to, to see something. Um, music is very important to me. And I guess it's horses writing <laughs> and music are kind of the things. And right now I'm obsessed with politics, which is no oh. not a happy place to be living no. in right now, oh, let me tell dear. you. Yeah, I know. It's like, please don't look at the news or you'll become so angry and upset you won't write. Um, but it's hard not to. So, <laughs> so that's sort of my world. Um, and I have very good friends. I mean, I'm hoping to put together a role-playing group again because I really, really miss that. And it was such a fun way to while away an evening, you know, rolling dice and eating snacks and laughing, you know, and having a good time. Oh, I, I just wanted to to see. It sounds like we might wrap up in a bit, but um, Amy or Richard, do you have other questions? No? Okay. Uh, no. So, I mean, like, like I said, I, I everything I had was on, on the high ground, and I'm like, because, no, 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 it, it, it's, it's no big deal. I mean, it's, because, it, I mean, it makes sense, because I actually had a, qu- a couple questions about, like, what was your uh, inspiration, but uh, uh, behind the episode? But obviously, it's it's pretty clear when we're uh, given the time of what was going on uh, uh, around the world. I mean, with Ireland and whatnot and whatnot. And it made it makes more sense. I I just figured that you know um, was was that story uh, any inspiration to what's going on now um, in the Middle East? But I but yeah, like I said, um, it really wasn't ramping up back then. Oh, I think certainly the yeah. Well, it 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 was. I mean, there were the you know, even twenty years ago, there were beginning hints mm-hmm. of the intifada. I mean, um, you know, and I think, and and this is why I fall back on my love of the law, and I really do love it, even though I don't practice it. If people have no redress, if there is no way to redress the wrongs that have been done to you, then people are going to turn to this asymmetrical form of warfare. Um, and that's why institutions um, are so vitally important and why the ability for a society to develop those institutions that we've taken for granted in this country and that are right now under tremendous assault, um, whether it's the courts or the free press or these various are the bureaucracy for that matter that, you know, make sure they're not putting tainted milk in the markets and these various things, then there's no way. And so people you know, re- resort to violence because they don't see any other alternative. Um, and that was, I think, I mean, that's the kind of thing that Star Trek always did so well. And what science fiction does very well. I mean, science fiction enables you to talk about real world present day problems in a setting that really makes them very relevant. I don't want to say obvious, that's the wrong word, but allows people to discuss these issues in a safer place than if they're talking about it in the real world, right. if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, partly the books that I'm writing right now, um, my Imperial series is about a society 500 years in the future. And and somebody said to me, interviewing me about the books, that you were writing a space opera that's really about a social commentary against the backdrop of, you know, spaceships and space battles and so forth, but you're much more interested in the social commentary, and I am. I I think the rights of women can be easily eroded um, if we don't have the right to control our biology, Um, and, and how we treat the other is very important to me in an era when, when we are demonizing the refugee, the immigrant. Um, and so I wanted to write about those things in a science fiction world setting. So I have a society in which the humans are the conquerors instead of, you know, the bug-eyed aliens being terrorizing the earth. I have the earth people terrorizing the poor bug-eyed aliens and, you know, kicking the hell out of them. So, um, that was what I've done with this book. And then my other books, the Edge series, are about the war between science and rationality and superstition and religion because um, you can't be a lover of Star Trek and not and not love space and science and, and um, 
the real things, you know, how, how the world really works, um, whether it's a big bang theory or evolution or whatever it is, um, facts are facts, science is science. So I wanted to address that in my other series. So I'm curious with your background in law, how easy is it for you to write all the techno babble and the science behind it? Um, I didn't find it that hard. I did find it annoying as hell. We all became very tired of the techno babble. Um, because it's an avoidance of actually having people communicate with each other. Um, and we hated it, but I could, I could ram it out there with the best of them because, you know, I read a lot of, of science books and science articles, um, stable wormholes and, you know, but of course much of what we made up was just nonsense and it would make us crazy on the day after an episode would air and we'd get all these emails of people saying, well, you said the, the ramoth ladder didn't do the thing, and it really, you know, blah, blah, blah. and we were like, you realize, of course, this is all made up, right? You know, um, I'll, I'll tell a story on Ron. Um, so one day, Ron turned in a script, Ron Moore, and a uh, terrific writer, but he had the Geordie techno babble, and Ricky and Hans and Ira and I are reading the script as it came in. And we all burst out laughing almost at the same moment. I could hear Ricky and Hunt's laughing in the office next to me. And because Ron's um, techno babble, he had written meaningless backwards. <laughs> <laughs> and Jordy says, you know, just a little and, and then later, one of our bosses was going over the scripting. was like, now this is what I'm talking about. This is great. This is what I'm talking Now this is some great techno babble. And we're all just sitting there going, Oh my God, you idiot! <laughs> no. um, and and I—they never knew. Oh my <laughs> God! Just wrote meaningless backwards. Um, yeah, it 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 got tiresome um, because again, I don't want to talk about things that aren't real. I want to talk about things that matter. And Star Trek could have been could have been so brilliant when we were allowed to do that, and then with actors that good, then the show just sang. Yeah, techno babble is one of those interesting things because I think in in Star Trek it's been felt that it's necessary to do that to make it feel kind of real-ish. But yeah, you're just making things up that it isn't going to be that way in the future, right? But you have to make something up that sounds kind of plausible that you can move past, right? <laughs> I guess, but I mean, spend less time on it. I mean, you know, um, I, I mean, we have a in my my prose writing group we have this um when somebody will say well how does that work or why why is this how does this thing happen and and one of our writers said it's made of plot (laughs) (laughs) and we went yes that's it it's made of plot and uh, it's it's fueled by plot um and you try not to spend too much time get over those things lightly and move on you know get get to the heart of the story um, and I think we could have, and, and again, you know, LeVar is a fantastic actor and we stuck him with a whole lot of dumb made up words, you know, instead of letting him, um, act. <laughs> so. so I'm curious to know, do you do any of the circuits or go to Star Trek Las Vegas or any of the conventions? I don't actually. Um, I do go to science fiction conventions, but I go to more the ones focused more on books and general media rather than just Trek. I went to one um, Star Trek, and I was a little shocked. I mean, I'm I come from a different tradition. I come out of science fiction book world, and the idea of people paying for autographs. I mean, I understand for the actors. I absolutely understand why. Uh, that's a different matter. But for writers, um, and also they, I like to actually spend time with fans and with aspiring writers. The thing about the science fiction community is it's the most generous group of people I've ever been with. I mean, as just you can see from my career, it's been the friendship and the helping hand from a lot of more experienced writers that have given me my career. And I think it's important that I do the same to new young writers coming in. And the one time I attended, I, you know, got up to give my talk and I thought I would talk about, you know, how I broke in and about writing a script and what they need to do. And after 15 minutes, they were like, come on, you got to get off the stage. And I was like, but I barely started, 
know, and they're like, no, 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 they just want to see you. And now you have to go do autographs. And then people were asking, do you have a headshot that we can buy and get an autograph? And how much do you charge for autographs? And I was like, I don't charge anything. <laughs> no, I don't have a headshot. <laughs> you know, I mean, um, I just, and, and that's frustrating to me um, because these people coming there, most of us in science fiction love it and we all want to be part of it. So I would prefer to be at a place where I can, you know, maybe give somebody some information that will help them start their own career. So I haven't done the Trek circuit. Um, and, and it does feel, I mean, you, you also feel a little, I mean, I'm proud of measure. And my dear friend, Lynn Ween, uh, who just recently passed away, Lynn is the creator of Wolverine and Swamp Thing and Nightcrawler and Storm and so many others. And we do have, you know, I had this moment where I said, you know, I'm so well known for something I did 20 years ago. And, you know, it's it makes me feel like a fraud that I'm dining out on something that I did so long ago. And Lynn said to me, no, he said, I created Wolverine a long time ago, too. But I know I already did. I did that. And it gave people a lot of pleasure. And you did that. And now you just pay it forward. And it really, you know, kind of helped buck me up and get me back on the horse, as it were, to really get back and say, I'll try to create something um, that hopefully will be as, as cool and meaningful in a different way uh, than measure was. So, um, and I think that's one reason I don't go is I'm trying to create something new rather than always, you know, dining out on the past, so to speak. Well, okay. So I just thought of one question. So you're a role-playing uh, game per, uh, player. Am I right? <laughs> is that what you said? Do you have a favorite? Oh, yeah. Do you have a favorite game? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Oh gosh. Um, well, I, my heart, I still love Call of Cthulhu because it was the very first role playing game I ever played in. And a game in which you can go insane is just kind of wonderful. Um, but I was in this group of people who were a bunch of professional writers, many of whom, like myself, had done theater. And so we created our own games. So Walter John Williams ran a Roman campaign, a Roman Republic campaign for 10 years that we played in. Um, we've played, um, we really like that. Um, I enjoyed Privateers and Gentlemen that Walter invented, which is a game where you're uh, young Navy officers uh, during the heroic age of sail, 1780, you know, to 1820. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I just love role playing games. I loved being able to hang out with friends and um and and create characters and because we were all frustrated actors or a lot of us were it turned into improv every night. Um and then of course there's Superworld that created Wild Cards. Wild Cards our book series grew out of Superworld. So George is an old comic book fan, loves them. And Vic for Christmas one year gave George this game called Superworld. And we played it obsessively, like three and four nights a week until two and three in the morning, where, you know, superheroes having adventures. And George is such an evil game master. He's so mean. Um, anyway, I, I know you're shocked after reading Game of Thrones that George would be, <laughs> would be such a tough game master. Um, but we had so much fun. But George would stay over at my house um, because rather than drive back to Santa Fe at three in the morning, and one morning he came dragging out and he said, there's got to be a way to make money off of this obsession. And so we sat down and we created this, uh, this shared world anthology, Wild Cards, that's about superheroes in the real world. And, um, and I created the Takesians who test an alien virus on Earth that gives some people superpowers. And book number 23, Actually, book 24 has just been published, and we have five more in the pipeline, and I'm working on setting up the TV show. So role-playing, it's not a waste of time, kids. <laughs> Look what can happen. You know, we ended up with a huge book series and a potentially a TV show. Awesome. So. Awesome. <laughs> wow, that's amazing. I still have my dice. My dice. I brought my dice to LA with me in search of a gaming group. So I still have my D20s and my D10s, and and I collect pretty dice. <laughs> you can oh, never leave home with those. Yep. I can't leave home without your dice. <laughs> can never leave <laughs> <Exactly>. your home. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> you must have your dice with you. So, no, I was actually guest of honor at a convention in um, Tucson 
last month and uh, they knew I was a role player and that I was missing it from my, my Facebook page where I periodically moan about not getting to role play. So they, two nights in a row, we, we they did role playing games that I could play. And one night we played Call of Cthulhu and the next night we played a wild cards game. So I, I played one of the characters I created for the book. So it was great fun. Nice. <laughs> yeah. Excellent. All right. So uh, tell us about, I know you've talked about it a little bit, but tell us about any current or upcoming work you'd like to let our listeners know about. Check out my books. Um, uh, the Edge books are available and the Imperials books. A second book in the series just came out. It's called In Evil Times. And um, book three has been delivered. I'm writing book four right now. It's a five book series. I, I believe in not open-ended things, but telling a coherent story and wrapping it up. I like to plot. Um, and so that's happening. And uh, my work in wild cards, I have a story up on tour.com um, that you can find. And I'm writing another wild card story for one of our upcoming wild cards novels. So uh, our shared world. So those are the main things I'm doing. And, and of course, I'm doing the Hollywood. I, it feels like you know, I'm pushing a boulder up the hill. I feel like I feel for Sisyphus because that's kind of what development in television is like right now. But we are getting there. <laughs> so those are the things I'm doing. Excellent. And uh, where can our listeners find you online? Uh, I have a website. Uh, I'm very easy to find. I'm the only Melinda Snodgrass in the wild. So melindasnodgrass.com. And I'm also on Facebook. Um, I have a really fun group of people and we talk about everything from movies and horses to, you know, politics and the art of writing. And, you know, I, um, we have a good time. We have a lot of fun. So I'm in both places. I am on Twitter, but I suck at Twitter. Um, I'm just not very good at it. So I generally end up retweeting interesting people. Um, but, uh, and again, I can be fine. I'm MM Snodgrass on Twitter. Um, so I'm, I am, I am out there. <laughs> not too hard to find, but, uh, I, I feel like Facebook is just right. So if you want to come hang out, um, come join come join my crowd on Facebook and read my blog. <laughs> I do have a website and a blog, so go check that out. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for, for joining us today. It was a, a pleasure having you on Earl Grey. Well, thank you. Um, it was great fun, and, and you guys are great interviewers. Thank you very much. Thank yeah, you. Thank you. Well, it was... Incredible interviewing Melinda Snodgrass, wasn't it? Yes. It was. Yeah. <laughs> it was It was wonderful. So many great insights into the next generation, novels she's written, things to look forward to that uh, she'll, she'll be working on. Um, and I just wanted to kind of go around with our, you know, closing thoughts. Uh, Richard. I thought it was a great interview. Uh, definitely... Uh, Got a little insight of what's what's going on in the uh, in the writing room, and I absolutely love hearing that kind of stuff. On, on you know, obviously, you know, they they share the same concerns as as us fans too, and and that's that's uh, reassuring to hear that uh, that they're all talking about that. So I absolutely love it. I'm I'm excited about. Actually, I just put some of her stuff into my into my Amazon cart, so um, definitely I'm going to check some of that stuff out. So. Yeah, it was a, it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, I loved hearing how geeky she is. You know, doing <laughs> role playing. I mean, just a gal after my own heart. It was so awesome that she truly loves science fiction and started at an early age and continues, you know, writing science fiction and and then like a horseman and just so interesting her passions and what she loves to do. I just love getting to know her on a more personal level. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, like, you know, like you, Richard, I love all these insights into, you know, the behind the scenes and what was it like in the writer's room and, you know, things Gene Roddenberry was asking for. I mean, this is just like the great stuff that we love to hear about. In addition to, you know, watching our beloved episodes, finding out what it took to make that, how it could have taken a different direction. And one of the things I'm definitely going to do is to download that original screenplay of the Ensigns of Command and read it and compare it to the episode because apparently she had something quite different in mind and I'm really curious to see what that would have been like. Um, you know, and and also one of the things that that she mentioned that I'm sure some of our listeners have have watched is the extended cut of The Measure of a Man, which has 13 extra minutes. Now, 
I don't have the Blu-rays yet, so I haven't seen that. But as soon as I can, I'm going to get a hold of it and see that because I've heard from other people that it enhances the episode and it's even better. And I think it's amazing that she was saying during the process, they knew that there was something special. So they specifically, you know, shot all of that footage, I think, even knowing that not all of it would make it in just to kind of preserve that for the future. So, yeah, I think we got some really great insights. It was it was a great interview and yeah. just wonderful to, to talk with her. Well, it's been so amazing talking with Next Generation writer Melinda Snodgrass, but that isn't the only thing we've been talking about here on the network. Here's what you might have missed elsewhere on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.FM, the 602 Club. Oh, huge. Uh, I mean, uh, Tintin... Definitely in Europe and in many, many other countries, um, in Africa and Asia, um, is really honestly as big as James Bond rolled together with Indiana Jones and Superman. The Edge, a Star Trek Discovery podcast. First of all, it very much hinges on the existence of subspace. Um, which is also a kind of murky sci-fi term that is used in Star Trek to explain how warp drive works and um, and how you can communicate the orb. And, and so it, it makes the relationship between uh, Nog and Jake really important because it's I think it does really soften Cisco's heart towards the Ferengi. And I think it does the same thing for Rom. Rom, I think, begins to see the ways in which these Federation types actually are different than most Ferengi to kind of think of them. Warp 5. I I like to talk about these things. They're not easy to talk about. You know, this is not an easy discussion to have because of so much stuff that's going on in our society right now. You know, and what's been going on for years. You know, again, that hashtag, the Me Too, like it really opened my eyes, you know, and which is what it was supposed to do, right? It's exactly what it was supposed to do. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out all of these shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get, wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit that subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad, or Apple TV or in the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they are published. And please leave us a star rating and written review. Now, listeners, we've got until December 31st. And if you leave us a rating and written review, you will be entered into our drawing. And the prize is the Art of Juan Ortiz Next Generation book. This book is amazing. We've been talking about it for a long time. So please go ahead and do that for us, and we will announce the winner in a few weeks. And Amy, that's for U.S. listeners, right? Yes, that is correct. We had our last U.K. iTunes rating and written review last time, so we're, we're alternating. We're, we got you covered. <laughs> there you go. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, in most third-party apps, and you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways that you can do that. The best place to join in the larger conversation is the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can do that too. Go to trek.fm slash contact, choose to send to a show, and select Earl Gray. That will come right to us. You can also find the network on Twitter at trek.fm and on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. Richard, where can people contact you? Well, they can find me on the Babel Conference, uh, pop in here and there, and I also am on Twitter. Uh, my handle is xransom. Justin, where can they find you? Well, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at TrekFan4747, where I tweet about nothing but Star Trek, and currently tweeting out my Season 4 rewatch of The Next Generation. And you can also find me hanging around the Babel Conference on Facebook. 
So Amy, where can people find you? You can find me here on the network. I'm one of the hosts of The Edge, which is our uh, podcast that covers discovery. And you can find me on Twitter at Miss Amy Nelson. But my favorite place is hanging out on the Babel Conference. If you'd like to help us keep all of our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron on the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash truckfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash truckfm to get all the details. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more. Available through our special patrons website, The Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month. We really appreciate any support you can give us and hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash truckfm. We'd like to take this opportunity to recognize our current associate producers, Norman Lau, Justin Ozer, and Michael Huter. Thank you for everything you guys uh, are doing to support Earl Grey. So join us next time for another cup of Earl Grey. Today is a good day to die! Great joy and gratitude. With your help, I am learning. <laughs>